0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to an awesome edition of the Independent Life Podcast. Woo, I had a great interview here, which I'm bringing to you with Dr. Vijay Vasandam. I'm probably killing his name last name here, and I apologize for that. But uh, he's somebody that I've known for a little while. Our paths crossed when we were working for... The Center for Innovation and Disability Rehabilitation Research, who has a mouthful for our local VA here uh, it was a really awesome center dedicated to serving veterans who had service connected disabilities, and he was into a lot of different things but one of the areas he was into was promoting physical activity and veterans who had disabilities and that is so in my wheelhouse and being very community-based and he's just a really really amazing person and we've kind of come full circle and have reconnected again in my role and position here at the Center for Independent Living in North Central Florida and in his current position as the associate data scientist with autism speaks we've connected on some work that's related to promoting the covid vaccine uh, in populations of people with disabilities and in with those interactions uh, and reconnecting with him, I'm like, oh my gosh, i got to get you on the podcast because your work in the disability community is so wide and it's so deep, as you'll hear from this conversation in which we get into... Uh, the medical model and disability, how people, you know, in the clinical you know settings, you know, view disability and the preparation where medical students and other healthcare professionals um, are getting trained to become healthcare professionals, impact how people with disabilities access uh, healthcare, and uh, we have some suggestions on where we've seen it, uh, how it can be improved based on where we've seen it been and where it is and where it's heading and then we really get into you know how perhaps we can destigmatize disability i think we we come up with a pretty good prescription on how that can be done uh, not that, uh, you know, we could solve that one in our lifetime or beyond, but I, I think we, have, we had some really good conversation uh, about that. We also get into what autism speaks. Uh, this wonderful organization is all about the autism community, uh, some of the needs that they have within that community. And uh, it's just a, a very uh, great conversation. It's was, it was just wonderful to have somebody that well beyond this conversation that I'm going to be continuing to work with. And And, you know, we could have gone on for a few more hours here. And I look forward to having him back on for for more interviews because he's just so wonderful. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Take care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of the Independent Life Podcast. I'm with my friend here, Vijay, and we're going to get into a whole lot of different things I can tell. First of all, I think it would be good for you to introduce yourself to folks and let them know a little bit about who you are, you know, what you would want to share about yourself and perhaps in particular, how disability has impacted you in your own life.
1: Sure. Welcome. Thank you for the introduction, Tony. I am Vijay. I am an associate data scientist with Autism Speaks. And I've been in this current role with them for about three years now. But I've been um, how disability has impacted my life. I first started noticing disability um, from my younger brother, who I think is autistic. Um, And I say, I think, because he was never officially diagnosed with autism, but that could also come from our cultural background, being from being an immigrant into the United States. He never actually got an official diagnosis. And then, so that was from that realm. And then both my grandmothers had physical disabilities because they just aged into older age. Mm -hmm. And so they had their physical disabilities. So that was my personal connection to disability.
0: So, so how how would you then say that it uh, you know impacted you uh, uh, as a brother and uh, as a family member to the the relatives that you had that had it? Like, what well, what impact did that have you know on your life psychologically, mentally, emotionally, anything?
1: You know, it's interesting because now that I've um, gone through my doctoral dissertation work in disability studies and learning the different models and constructs of disability. Growing up, I was in the mindset of a medical perspective of -hmm. disability and truly trying to think of like, how could we control or help them move better, get rid of their autism or something Mm -hmm. like that. But that's also the a the child in me uh-huh. and b that was the 90s perspective right which is a very Medical different model. time Yeah, have yeah, very different time period than we are now which is where we're looking at a social perspective or a biopsychosocial perspective uh-huh. of disability yeah
0: yeah you know i and i think it's kind of like human nature perhaps but maybe it's human nature because like it was nurture like how you and i really were you know conditioned to to want to fix want to cure uh, want to do those kind of things, like like you said, it's more medical model kind of based. And, you know, so I guess from, from that perspective, you know, you've now gone in, did, How, if it did, how did that then influence the direction and path that you've taken? And, and we'll get into, you know, the journey along the way, because you've had some really interesting uh, experiences in your professional life with disability. But is that those experiences in your personal life something that led you in your professional life to really... Uh, start getting involved in the world of disability
1: it actually is exactly tied into my journey into my world of disability when I wanted to do um, first I was a failed medical student I never got into any med school so I thought I would go into a public health program and learn from that field uh-huh. and when I got into the program I saw that there was an application for a research assistant position discussing um, barriers to breast cancer, barriers and facilitators to breast cancer screens for women with physical disability, where they were actually partnering with the- your CIL. Yeah. And as part of that project, I was like, well, both my grandmothers had breast cancer. Um, one of them at that time passed away from breast cancer. So I figured let's go ahead and see if I could apply for it because it's a personal connection. Uh-huh. And from that project, I got the research assistant position. And that's how I got introduced to the SIL and got involved more involved with the projects and more closely connected to learning about the independent living movement.
0: So what did you learn about the barriers then and facilitators for women who have uh, physical disabilities and breast cancer screenings?
1: biggest barriers that I learned were that healthcare providers are not officially, are not trained as they go through their programs. Um, There's no set curricula, which is understandable in a way, because when you meet one person with a disability, you meet one person with a disability, you meet their perspective because every person is different. But what is critical is that there's no set rubric, uh, to at least establish a baseline to make sure that every provider who comes out of any kind of medical profession has some kind of baseline education for working with a person with a disability. Uh-huh. And so that was my biggest takeaway from that project.
0: And, and, you know, it's interesting because, you know, and maybe this goes back to your experience and, and, quote, unquote being a failed medical student, but it seems like to me the rigor of getting into medical school has n- nothing to do with the necessary skills that a you know, medical physician needs in the day-to-day practice of what they do. So in other words, what I've seen, it requires like a lot of rote memorization of information and facts that will never be used in the clinical setting. <laughs> and and like the skills that most medical physicians need according to at least the medical professions including the American Medical Association is you know health literacy the ability to communicate information in the language uh, that a person can understand and act on they identify that as being like the number one skill and I know a lot of people that can stuff a lot of facts inside their head but couldn't have a conversation to save their life with the person and let alone encourage them to to go ahead and take some actions that would then subsequently improve their health. That A is interesting. And from what I understand, uh, UF and others, you know, hopefully are really changing the requirements to get into medical school, school, the types of things that medical school students must acquire in terms of the functional skills that they'll actually need in the clinic. Um, But that being said, I guess the, the, the notion that you know there's limited training on how to work with people in a clinical setting that have a wide variety of disabilities is something that nowadays I think is talked a lot about, which is patient-centered care. So again, going back to that the progression of medical school and training and everything else like there, you know, it only seemed recently to me that this notion of, you know, really tailoring health related information to the patient is somewhat, I, I, I think almost like a, maybe a, a, a decade or a little more kind of really more that it's become mainstream. I don't know. What's your take on that? I've said a lot there, but you know, I think like the the rigor of medical school getting in while in, it seems to be mismatched to the clinic and then layered on top of that. Yeah. There's no tailoring of uh, communication styles to the patient where it makes it more patient centric.
1: And beyond all of that, um, the number one thing that I've always heard is the number one um, is communication. And people are good communicators before they go into a medical school or any kind of PT school or something. But then as part of their education, they are, they're kind of force fed all the jargon into them. And and then you almost have to unlearn <laughs> that jargon to to effectively communicate it back to yeah, to yeah, the patients. Yeah. And the intru- the really cool part about everything that I've from what I've heard is that many disabled people, um, well, it's people in general, they talk, and so they say, "Who do I go to for X?" And who do do you recommend for why? And so if you find, if you are a person with a disability or someone who has a child with autism, you say, hey, who do you recommend I take my child to? And you'll get a great recommendation. Say like, oh, I know this doctor or I know this therapist or I know this um speech person who's really great at working with my child and so what you'll end up happening is that provider gets a huge list of patients of, of, to go to them and so like that's one avenue and like it's almost like you're getting that level of care is that level of communication is going to that one provider so like they're getting all the providers and then almost what happens is anyone who is gets a disability or gets autism or gets some kind of other kind of condition, they're automatically sent to that provider as opposed to everyone learning and having like an inclusionary tactic.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. So, you know, someone that tends to be really good at serving, say, you know, like you were mentioning, you know, people that have autism and everything else like that could be limiting the amount of exposure and experience other healthcare providers might have in working with that population. So it's kind of like in leadership, like, you know, we want people to be great leaders, but if the leaders that are currently leading don't get out of the way so other people can have the opportunity to lead, there's no way that, you know, other generations of people can step up and learn how to be good leaders. It's
1: a weird detriment because you want them to do well, and you want those people to be there to really share, to almost share their knowledge with what they have with other people. Um, But how do you encourage other people to come in and engage with those providers to learn from them and say, it's not a bad thing that you don't have this knowledge, but it's a bad thing that you don't want to learn it and you don't want to accept it.
0: Well, you know, and maybe there's, you know, I guess it's a classic stereotype that, you know, med- medical doctors, physicians, you know, and other healthcare providers are often put upon in the lay public, you know, on this pedestal and, you know, seen as like what they say is, you know, gospel and really that they're uh, more than perhaps they really are. And there's this mystique about it. Maybe over time now, and with the COVID pandemic, maybe things are getting demystified. But it seems like you know, uh, MDs and, and whatnot are definitely put up in high regards, and for many reasons should be. And at the same time, you know, we shouldn't see them as infallible. Yeah. You're, <laughs> right? you're right. But
1: it's not just them, but it's also all public health professionals, too. And that includes, like specifically, we're in the pandemic in public health. Science communication failed. Mm-hmm. Failed. It failed drastically around the lines of mask wearing, the idea about COVID vaccines, mm-hmm. and and the importance of those issues. Like how do you even something as simple as Operation Warp Speed, which is the COVID nineteen vaccine project that the federal government did to create the vaccines. And all that did was it removed the uh, structural barriers from the federal perspective to create and get the vaccines authorized from a federal perspective. But just the name alone insinuates that the vaccines were rushed when, in fact, they were not rushed. All the steps and procedures were still done. They just were never the, the name insinuates that they were. Uh, that, so the communication, that. Fact, the communication factor failed across the board and so many people who were at risk of who are at risk of covid which include many people with disabilities continue to be at risk because they want to get the vaccine which is what the cdc data says but they are not able to because they face many structural barriers to getting it like transportation like attitudes like just getting time to go get it because as you know like my friends always called it crip time because everything takes longer uh-huh. to do things like getting ready, trans- going, uh-huh. transferring, yep. um, educating, advocating. So just all of that takes longer. And the, even though they want to get the vaccines, they just can't.
0: Yeah, well, and we're going to unpack that because I know you, you and I both are uh, connecting on vaccine promotion and populations with people with disabilities. Wanna continue on that thread though, like, you know, we're we're doctors and communication, um, not being always kind of the best thing. And I know that our my experience in working with healthcare providers, when we do like disability awareness, they often come into the conversation like they definitely already have this wrapped. Why do I gotta be in this? And then by the time we end up leaving, it seems like for some of them it is a shift in paradigm. Like they weren't seeing disability in their patients as much as like they were seeing diagnoses of whatever health condition they were seeing them for so if someone you know who is blind or deaf or you know had autism were coming to them not for their disability but some other underlying health condition They weren't taking their disability necessarily into consideration. They might know facts about those kind of conditions, but they weren't necessarily thinking about, you know, how they need to tailor their communication styles to to meet them, alternative formats for communicating with them, any accommodations that they might need after they leave them, special types of follow-up that they might need to have if they are blind or low vision how they might need to go through the brown bag you know routine with them Mm -hmm. and laying out all the prescriptions and all these different things seem to kind of like go by the wayside because they were so focused on the underlying health condition versus any kind of accommodations alternative formats and and follow-ups that might be different than your person without a disability
1: it it reminds me of a, when I was in school, it reminds me of a story or, or one of the lessons that we learned where initially when people with disabilities went to see their doctors, they, I think it would be so that all the providers would ever see was their disability. And now, and not the reason for their healthcare visit, but then that shifted and now the providers might see like all that they're thinking about is the reason for the visit, but not accommodating for the disability too like how could you make sure that your site is accessible inclusionary and also communicating properly too and not infantilizing your tone of talk to an adult with intellectual developmental disabilities or talking to a parent while you have an adult patient with them too
0: yeah and and I think like therein lies again like this might be cultural or you know timing of when people went through medical school and everything else like that, is that it seems like again not patient centric but more clinical centric like uh, the patient has to conform to the way that the clinics run and the healthcare providers speak. Versus Mm -hmm. like we're going to tailor our clinic and modify our clinic and have all the different accommodations and alternative formats ready to to be tailored to the patient. And we're going to tailor our communication style, which may be at a graduate level of communicating with all the jargon, like you were saying, to the language and way that people understand and not dumbing it down to the level where people are going to feel disrespected either. That's an art uh, that I'm not sure how to teach necessarily in a formal school setting, but perhaps still can be integrated into the ways that people learn, you know, that are healthcare providers.
1: I feel like it's getting
0: better. Yeah.
1: I think it's a generational thing. I think it's a generational thing. It definitely is a generational thing. The younger providers, I feel, are more open to speaking to uh, patients in a general term but I don't, I don't know if that's actually the case, though. At times, I feel like the providers who go to primary care are definitely the ones who are able to communicate better with their patients. The ones who go to specialty, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, the other providers, because I know we're specifically talking about physicians, I think, but there's many of the other healthcare providers Absolutely. too. Yeah, um, they're specialists too. So how can you? How are they able to work with their patients in a manner that? is communicating in a proper way and i think that's i'm not sure and uh, i think it's working with making sure that they have community-based practice and yeah. going to diverse practices not yeah. just a generic university-based clinic yes that it sees one type of patient
0: yep you know, and w- I got to say that, um, so I, I got experience working in actual, uh, doing our disability awareness trainings and, and this, that, and the other, and how to communicate with people with various disabilities with, you know, healthcare professionals, and a lot of experience in doing these, you know, similar presentations to medical students as they're going, you know, through medical school. And there does seem to be a generational difference that the the students definitely seem to be more uh, hip with the... Uh, the appropriate ways of speaking with people the t- terminology perhaps even empathy mm-hmm. that i again my experience is anecdotal and very subjective here but i've definitely seen that and when working at the univer with the university of florida i know i don't know if you knew dr nancy hart but uh she she I was she was somebody that in pediatrics and she was responsible for the community based rotation that the medical students would go on to and she had them going out to um, community resource centers that were in low-income minority neighborhoods. And she was largely responsible for getting the uh, mobile outreach clinic, which is still going uh, up and running. Like she's the one that helped to really create that program, which is uh, you know basically an RV bus that's been retrofitted with healthcare providers that drives out into you know very low-income neighborhoods that have um, poor access to healthcare. And so that experience, because I, I definitely got to work with the resource centers that, that we had the medical rotation students out on the equal access clinics and the mobile outreach clinics. I got to say, like, just talking with those students out there, they would say by far and away, um, that was some of the most rich experience that they had, you know, above and beyond the uh, university-based clinics that they were, you know, getting their experience with.
1: I think it's, in addition to that, it's also, we, as part of the, um, one of the other very beginning state disability and health projects that I was on that University of Florida received at the very beginning uh, from CDC, one of the projects that was received was creating a disability inclusion class uh, from Susan Haverkamp. And I believe she was at the University of South Florida at the time. And that was actually one of the first projects that I heard of that tried to educate this, um, medical students about disability into their and integrate it into their medical curricula. I know now Linda long Belil up in University of Massachusetts, she's trying to do something similar, but at the medical board level to so like the AMA um, AAP. So like American medical association, American Academy, pediatrics, that level. Uh-huh. So that way when they are postgraduate, when they go for their board certification, they still have to get some kind of disability education and inclusion. But beyond just having like a separate disability course or something like that where disability is like another thing, but having disability included into all of their courses. So like you have a geriatric course, but saying like, okay, geriatrics is this, but also reminding like as part of geriatric medicine, you also have to remember they're going to have mobility disabilities. They're going to have mm-hmm. cognitive disabilities. Yeah. They might have sensory issues. For pediatrics, they're going to have to remind them all the developmental disabilities, as well as many other kinds of disabilities that might come up. Emergency medicine, you're going to have to talk about the many disabilities that might come up from there. And just different kinds of issues that come up from disability, making sure that disability is included in all these different kinds of coursework that they're going to be seeing. And when they leave school, make sure that they're having almost like booster education as part of their board certification or continuing education courses that they do have to take.
0: I really like that model where it instead of just compartmentalizing it into like, okay, you got to take a three-hour course as part of your medical school on disability and be like done with it. What I'm hearing you say is like it's a thread that's woven through all the different types of courses that a med student or, you know, someone that's, you know, specializing in any kind of types of healthcare might have to take. So it's kind of a theme that's, you know, hammered in.
1: You don't see like a separate course on race and medicine uh-huh. or gender and medicine. They've done a pretty good job of, I mean, as far as I know, interweaving those topics throughout their other health courses and topics. But disability, it is the one demographic that is cross demographic that everyone will experience, but it's still not covered from a healthcare perspective at this level. It's,
0: it's fascinating that that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. Like given, like you said, like it, it touches everyone. And so I also, um, find it interesting that, you know, people with disabilities and, uh, you know, will, you know, be accessing healthcare and, and these providers that have been trained in the way that it's been kind of compartmentalized, I almost see it kind of like as, uh, say, nutrition, for example. So nutrition is, is one of those things that I find is associated with so many of the top chronic conditions that are out there. So for example, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obviously, stroke, like these are the like top causes of death, right? Mm-hmm. From what I understand in the classic you know medical training that pre-med students go through, like, they'll take a three-hour course on, med- you know, nutrition. That'll be it. You know, I, I find this, you know, still, like, this parallel with, with the way it is right now with disability. So it does make me very excited to hear, like, there are University of Massachusetts or wherever it might be, like, this this idea that we're going to catch up to, you know, other demographics and weaving it in throughout the whole experience that the students have.
1: The hard part, though, I, I, will, I will try to push back a little bit on this one because, health behaviors like diet and healthy eating and physical activity where do you learn those behaviors you learn them at home
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and you're going to model the behaviors of your parents and from especially healthy eating from a child's perspective who controls their diet it's the parents right i know from my perspective i control the diet of what my kids eat and there are just some days where i just I'm at my wit's end, so I'll give them chicken nuggets and mac and cheese, and I know that's not healthy for mm-hmm. them. But it's like I'm I'm got two young kids. So I just want them to eat something, but then I also know like I'm going to supplement it after the fact when they're done for their next meal to counteract those negative <laughs> that negative food. <laughs> but I've also calories know, eat <laughs> yeah, and it's also like I just need like t- I just need like twenty minutes of some quiet while yeah. they eat their dinner, yeah. and then the next morning I'll give them something a little bit healthier. But it's also like, how can we make some realize? Like my son, he realized he says something like, "This is not healthy," or like a cake is not healthy, and I'm, I have to remind him, like, "No, it's not as healthy. But if you eat it like every day, no, it's not healthy for you. But if you eat it like once, like for like a birthday party, it's fine. Yeah, you're you're okay with that. So like, giving him those healthy habits, and I think that comes on parents and doctors and healthcare providers can be there to just educate the parents and how can they that's where the communication comes in about how can they work with the parents to make sure like they work with their child's any kind of disability issues that they might have
0: yeah i'm I'm glad you're pushing back on this because now you're really helping you know me to really zoom out more and say like you know so perhaps finding out the best diets or promoting physical activity or I'll even throw alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs into the mix here, like any kind of like lifestyle-related behavior that are associated with health outcomes, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, stroke, et cetera, maybe that's more the public health professionals' roles and responsibility. Maybe that's their lane. And, and that's where I think, like, in a, in a lot of ways, when we look at public health, that's where it can shine, like health promotion, community-based, individual, you know, societal, interpersonal, policy know that can impact all those kind of things maybe plays a more powerful and relevant role than the medical doctor saying, you should eat this way. You know, I know you've got some experience in, in promoting, you know, health promotion, physical activity and those other kind of things. So first of all, I guess like maybe I'll I'll start with, you know, what what do you think we can be doing to promote healthy lifestyles for people with disabilities? Because I recognize that at least with physical activity, people with disabilities tend to get less, you know, physical activity than people without disabilities. I'm not sure what it is in nutrition. I think that one, I I don't know the research on it. When I was in school, it was hard to discern how people were measuring nutritional behaviors was still like very questionable and not universal. Um, Alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs, uh, it does seem to be, depends on the disability type, you know, kind of thing, like people- I think actually with, I think with
1: alcohol and tobacco, it's actually still increased with people with disabilities, especially if you look at minority, Racial minorities, especially the Native American community. Mm -hmm. Um, But going back to your question about how can we increase physical activity for the disabled community, Uh it goes back to the very basic topic of inclusion, right? If you design it so that everyone can be included, then you're not excluding anyone. Mm -hmm. There are, I my the main park at my and here in Gainesville down in Depot, they actually have pretty good accessibility, I think, because I think people with wheelchairs can get on the main playground and use all the equipment. They have different equipment that people can get on and use. How truly accessible it is for many other disabilities, I'm not sure. But it has, I think, a baseline level of accessibility and inclusion that I think is better than some. But if you go to a school, many of those equipment are not accessible for someone for a child with a disability and is that because those children are sent over to a different playground or sent over to a different school for their education and play Mm -hmm. Um, that's where i think that's the baseline level like how can we just start at that spot
0: And, uh, you know, so addressing like kind of environmental access to physical activity, I think you brought up a good point earlier is that the people that are making choices about engagement in physical activity are largely the parents and caregivers, perhaps interventions on that level is really important. I know here at our, at our center, um, you know, when we do our independent living skills classes and you know, we're educating you know, the people that come into them about the importance of physical activity or how to do adaptive physical activities and this, that, and the other, yes, it's important for them to have it. And at the same time, we recognize that the influence uh, you know, or the you know, independence for them to, to, to go and do this is also dependent upon you know, the people that they live with.
1: It's that, and it's also the the weird irony now. It's not just the physical activity, it's the breaking up of sedentary behavior. <laughs> so it's like, you can be active and get all your 150 minutes of activity in one chunk in a day, but if it, the rest of the week you're completely sedentary, that's just as bad yeah. as being completely inactive. Yeah. So it's like, how can you balance that out, especially in today's society where, and during within this stage of the pandemic where everyone has to do zoom's calls where we're talking like this, yep. or if you're on a tablet or for someone like for childhood needs it, for accessibility purposes, how can we make sure that they have the availability of access and also education purposes and also for the parents entertainment purposes and also just go and be like, get outside and play yeah. and run
0: for at least that bit of time that you need to.
1: And also, now that we're in a heat wave, how are you gonna make sure that you're gonna safely do it too?
0: Yeah, as we're recording this, it's it's pretty rough right now here in Florida. I think North Central Florida uh, is going through a pretty, pretty intense heat wave. And yeah, so you know, we're looking at environment. We're looking at, yeah, if we do structured physical activity for, like you said, a certain chunk of time, but then the rest of the time we're spending, you know, doing sedentary motion. And and to me, that like is very striking when, when we look at the research on blue zones. So the, the areas of the world where people tend to live closer to 100 than others, it, it seems to be the different one, one of the many differentiating variables compared to other places that aren't blue zones is that they don't do structured physical activity, you know, they actually their physical activities interwoven into the their their lifestyles. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's part of like, you know, instead of. Of course, you got to like design a community to, to be more pedestrian, but they're more walking to their places of work or school um, or getting food. Like protected bike zones, yeah, bike lanes. There you go. That. All right. Oh, goodness. We need that here in Gainesville. And so like that's in there. And then even just like in the, in the home environment, you know, there's less chairs. Like people are living closer to the ground. And, and so, you know, you mentioned having kids. One thing I notice is that in having kids, I'm getting on the ground with them more. Mm-hmm. And man, there's a big difference between standing up from the ground than a chair at 90 degrees where, you know, all the mechanical advantage is already there to go from sitting to standing versus the, from the ground to to standing. So maybe there's, yeah, I don't know how to do that in such a screen-based culture that we live in now, but how we, you know, especially with, you know, kids uh, who have disabilities or anyone with a disability, how do we integrate just more movement in our day-to-day lives?
1: Maybe it's not just that, but it's also making it a fun place to be to integrate other aspects of your social life too mm-hmm. my my advisor his name was jim rimmer he would always talk about um from university of illinois chicago now he's at the university of alabama i know Brandon. of him
0: he's very well published in this area yeah
1: he's he yeah he's like the main person in physical activity yeah, and disability I, he's at the lakeshore foundation
0: i've cited him in my research <laughs> that's awesome I did not know that
1: yeah So he, that's the person who I went to study under at at Chicago. Wow. He told me like, we were chatting one day. He said like, he always viewed a fitness center as like the main hub for people's lives as they grow older. Like he, he envisioned like people kind of wake up, they go there, they maybe have like a cup of coffee at a, at a gym. Then they go do like a spin class and they come back, meet their friends, talk with them, get their social interaction there. Then maybe they go do a weight class for like 20, 30 minutes, come back, relax for a little bit, go home, shower, come back at the end of the day, say hi to a different group of friends, maybe go swimming and do something else. And the gym is like the hub of their social interaction, their, ed- their food, uh-huh. they have healthy food options. And then you also get a physical activity there. And maybe you could like walk to and from your house or something like that.
0: I love that. Man, is, is he still uh, working? Is he still alive?
1: He is still alive. He's still working. He still runs the NICPAD, the National Center on Health, Physical Activity and Disability. Wow. They actually received a lot of CDC funding to create local impact inclusion grants to create um, small city inclusionary gro- zones of physical activity wow. um, inclusion areas. And it's actually a really great project area that they've started to work on.
0: Wow. I'm a geeked out fan of his. Uh, yeah. I have to get his autograph from you somehow. Hook <laughs> <Pick> me up. <laughs> but, uh, you know, along, along those lines, as you're saying, like, you know, which I love the, that vision where, like, it's a community-based center you get some physical activity. You get social and emotional. That, and that's what I love about physical activity. Like that's my number one health-related behavior. Uh, that I just feel like is just so important for for just those two domains alone. Uh, beyond the physical benefits of it, the health benefits. It's Just like it can be social. You know, I can learn so much about myself and other people. My uh, and social emotional learning uh, that can accompany that is just fantastic. I don't know if you've ever been out to the Gainesville Senior Recreation Center, but as you're saying that that's what it reminds me of they they do have like these fitness you know kind of things but then they have like rooms for people to play bingo rooms for people to socialize to come see presentations from community-based you know organizations leaders politicians and etc and they've really set that up to almost be that there's paths outside that have walks there's a frisbee golf course that isn't too far away but i feel like you know the as you're saying that and and it almost reminds me i grew up in a ymca sadly. And it was kind of like almost like a similar kind of thing to that, and I, and I just love that idea.
1: It definitely is a unique perspective, especially for dis- for disabled people. Like, how could you make that work? Yeah. And as we know from his work and many things, it's like they're not there yet. So, like in the interim, how could we?
0: Yeah, and, and it's what, what can we do? And it's tough. It's another brick and mortar kind of solution in a virtual world, you know. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and again, access transportation um if cost. You, if cost and then you know too like if it's exclusively for people with disabilities and you get that exclusionary kind of thing how can you make it inclusive where it's everybody there's a lot there it's always the the minutiae that's in there <music> I know you did some work related to physical activity and your work with veterans. Yes. So I want to you know, use this as a pivot point, too, to, to say that you and I both kind of crossed paths momentarily at the Center for Innovation and Disability Rehabilitation Research at our local VA here. Um, which, you know, they did some really extraordinary work uh, in in so many different types of researchers and projects that that were going on there. Uh, Very fascinating. But um, first of all, what what led you into your interest and or work with uh, veterans?
1: I had actually left my position at the University of Florida as an assistant scientist position. So it was actually a good timing and good fit with my research interests to work with Cinder. so that's why I went there because I knew how they had like a really great facility and kind of the project area that I would want to work on. Um, the reason for working with veterans is just kind of, it's always just kind of been a passion project for me, like passion area. Um, and they literally, I would say, they helped me get through a very difficult period of my life at that point. So that's why I was very grateful of working with the VA and Cinder at that period, so that's why I wanted to work
0: with them. What, what did you learn about veterans and disabilities through your experience there and after, you know, that you would want people to know that might not know a veteran with a disability? Um,
1: it's very different from the general community of people with disabilities. They have, it's, it's very different in that many of the people with disabilities had from the VA had either a physical disability or they had a cognitive disability or mental health Mm -hmm. and those are the three big ones that i came across Mm -hmm. and compared to the general community it's not nearly as symmetrical as well as the racial ethnic diversity was not there it's very predominantly white non-hispanic
0: gotcha
1: at least at least at rva
0: and you know one of the things because my my role uh, there at cinder and and when I was working for the VA was uh, you know under community reintegration was the jargon. like so you know veterans that had service connected disabilities coming back into civilian life and and at the time, which was kind of around the 2010-ish to twenty you know twelve and beyond, uh, was like, Veterans, uh, I guess in 2008, there was a reauthorization of the GI Bill, which was uh, an affordable way to go back to college for veterans. And so there was like many veterans coming back from uh, recent deployments going back to college. I mean, like there is just mm-hmm. clustering. Veterans were clustering in post-secondary institutions. And so what a great place to then, you know, reach them. Because uh, as you're saying, they, they tend to be an asymmetric population. Many of them do live in, in rural areas. So I was like, wow, this is a great place to connect with them. And one of the things that I, I really learned that, you know, they didn't seem to have that, that um, you know, if they had a disability they weren't necessarily associating themselves with the community of people with disabilities. So you worked now like with Autism Speaks. And so there seems to be a mm-hmm. lot of community um, with people who have autism and or people, you know, caregivers and parents around autism. Like there seems to be community there. I didn't mm-hmm. get that there was like a, um, from my experience, a lot of community pulling veterans together around disability rather it was the the inverse of that. It was like, they didn't want to acknowledge, or, you know, and this is common in the disability communities too. But like, they didn't want to acknowledge having a disability. They ran from disability. The, the the people or veterans that I was working with at the University of Florida who had a diagnosed disability didn't even want to come near the Disability Resource Center, even if they could utilize their services.
1: Yeah, it's almost like they were more open to acknowledging that they were a veteran, that they were which war they were a part of, yeah, which um, service they were a member of. But it's, it's also a very negative experience for them too. Yeah. Like you go there, if you lose a leg or something like that, or you go through a very, it's a trap and you might have tra- trauma associated mm-hmm. with it too. And so it's, I kind of understand why they don't want to Absolutely. associate with the disability community with that point. Yeah. But it's also, it's how does the disability community also just say like, Hey, but it's, well, I see many similarities between the veteran community and also many people in the aging community too. They say like, Oh, I don't have a disability. I'm just getting older. Even though they use like a cane, they have trouble Mm -hmm. hearing, they have trouble seeing, they have trouble moving, they can't drive. And they benefit from all the benefits of the disability rights movement, like having the accessible parking and all those other things ramps and automatic doors. But they don't view themselves as disabled. They just say, "Oh, I'm older."
0: Yeah, yeah. It you know, and again, I think points to the stigma right around disability, and that's what I was learning from the other veterans when I was asking them, well, "Why don't you go to the disability resource center? You could use the X, Y, and Z accommodation that would really help you out." And a lot of the feedback I was getting, at least from the veterans, was that you know they they were worried about you know with their friends or family, other students, uh, mm-hmm. professors would think of them. And again, that just to me you know, was, was really pointing at the root causes of stigma. Um, parents uh, who I've come into contact with who have you know, their, their children has a disability and really struggling to come to terms with doing what's necessary to get the services they need, sign them up for an IEP or 504, not wanting them to be labeled as having a disability. What's that gonna do to their self-identity? What's that gonna mean in terms of their social interactions? Will they get bullied more? So yeah, I I see such reservation with people identifying as having a disability even though they have a disability and running from it and for me that's the insidiousness of stigma and us buying into it. Oh, it
1: absolutely, absolutely and part of that I think stems from I can give a personal anecdote to that too is my with relation to my brother. My parents and my would always use my um, autism as a four letter word whenever my brother would have like a outburst or like a negative interaction with them or like you have like strong emotions and just have like really like tantruming almost and they'd say like oh it's your autism this is autism this is why you're behaving like this and so now as an adult it's kind of like he views autism as a bad thing and it's a negative thing as whereas if he had gotten that diagnosis or even as an adult became viewed himself as an as a person with autism, you could get services, supports, community things that are available to you, but he doesn't view it because of that stigma that arises from that those negative behaviors or those negative interactions.
0: How can we destigmatize disability? <laughs> No softball questions here on The Independent Life. No, 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 <laughs>
1: nothing. Just little, we're going to fix everything. That's right. I think there's a lot of positive aspects that have gone on, right? I think the first aspect is visibility has fixed, has has helped move things forward. President Obama had his first rollability, his secretary of rollability. I forget her name, but she was a wheelchair user in as part of his executive staff. So she was definitely available there. Having a disability senior advisor to the White House is always nice to have and it's good to hear mm-hmm. from their level and even in social media and TV. And so like the big thing now is I say love on the spectrum mm-hmm. on Netflix. Mm-hmm. So like seeing shows like that where you have actual people, or I hope that's actual people with disabilities mm-hmm. available on those shows. And saying, like, this is what it actually is for to be the person with a disability, not over-dramatizing it. And not, like, saying, like, way back in, like, the 1950s to say, like, the person with the disability is the freak show. Mm-hmm. Or, and not saying, like, they're the the weird ones on the side. Mm-hmm. Or, like, the, the carney act or something like that. Yeah. And saying, like, they're, like, those, I think, had done so much harm. Sure. And so, like, now I think flipping it on their head. And I think even in um, a lot of the film studies that have gone on with the Disability and Film Institute, I think some of the work Carrie Sandall at the University of Illinois, Chicago, she does a lot of disability and film work around this area too, and kind of studies from this area and realm.
0: So, so more visibility and accurate portrayal of people with disabilities, mm-hmm. especially like in, in, in that area as well all right
1: i think it's that and it's also making it recognizing like the benefits of having inclusionary perceptions of this for the people with disabilities is going to benefit everybody
0: what's inclusionary perceptives
1: it just take inclusion take anything that if you have access and you say access and inclusion okay um interchangeably because I feel like if you say accessibility, then you're making it say like, it's only for people with disabilities. Ah. But if I say it's inclusion then I'm saying you're including everybody. Um, I like
0: that. Okay. I hadn't thought of that nuance. That's, that's good.
1: Uh, yeah. Some of my disabled friends I've started switching over to inclusion uh-huh. more than access. Uh-huh. So like the easy thing is like saying, like, as you know, like if you have a ramp, anyone can use the ramp, but if you have stairs, People in wheelchairs or a mom pushing a stroller uh-huh. cannot
0: use the stairs. Yeah.
1: Or a dad pushing a stroller uh-huh. or something like that. Can sure, sure. cannot push the stairs. I,
0: I like that a lot. I think that that nuance has a very profound difference, you know, accessibility and inclusion. I also noticed that you say, you know, disabled community, disabled person instead of like people first terminology. Is that because the empowerment piece of disability?
1: I switch between both. I I switched between both. I started to to go more um, identity first Mm -hmm. because of the empowerment piece um, because I've saw that's what more disabled people have started to say that they want identity first. Mm -hmm. And so I've been like, okay, that's fine. I'll go with that. But I also am not part of that community. So at times I'll also say person with disability. Mm -hmm. But I also, at times I want to go back and want to borrow language that the deaf community have used have used with the capital d deaf and lower d Uh deaf uh and say capital d disabled and lower d disabled so that way i can distinguish like hey this is the disabled community talking versus this is a disabled person
0: gotcha i i think that you're you're really hip to the, the the change i've seen over the last decade so I think for a while there, it's been predominantly the consensus being, you know, people first terminology, there's so much more to identity than disability, blah, blah, blah. And now I've definitely seen a shift to where more and more people are saying, no, I want to be recognized first as having a disability and more empowerment. And I I really appreciate and respect where that's coming from, because like, as you were saying earlier, what we really need is more visibility, someone's got to be the one being visible. Someone's got to claim it, you know, come stand under our tent.
1: And you know, it's a little bit of education too. Yeah. A lot of it, it stemmed from when I was in the MPH program, we did a special project with your cell to do like access to do an accessibility project of Gainesville.
0: Was this for transportation?
1: <laughs> uh, just a general accessibility assessment. Okay. And the first thing that we did was just say like, we, my friend and I, we went to, I think his name was Mark. I don't know if he still works uh-huh. there. Gotcha. And we said, Hey, I'm going to say a derogatory term. So I apologize in advance um, because I did not know at the time. But I said, Hey, what can you explain a little bit about handicapped parking? And he says, Don't say that term. It's a derogatory term. And I said, Oh, why is that? And he gave the history behind why that is a derogatory term. And ever since then i was like oh okay i I didn't know so it's a little bit of the knowledge factor of people just being wanting to do that and also just saying like it's does it it takes no effort on my part to say that's to, to call someone Disabled or uh-huh. person with a disability based upon what they prefer.
0: Yeah, I think that's always good to ask what people prefer, you know, if we're going to be in a situation where we're talking about. I mean,
1: ideally, it's their name first. Yeah, right. So.
0: I know. And sometimes like it's not even <laughs> uh, yeah needed. But I think you could bring up a good point. I got to say in, in my disability awareness uh, trainings or workshops that we do. You know, I will ask people, do you, you know, what is the recommended kind of thing to call those, you know, parking places? And, and many people still refer to them as handicap parking and, and whatnot. From what I understand, it's accessible parking. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I'm not sure inclusionary parking would fit there. <laughs> because it, if
1: i i don't think inclusionary parking is there because it's still accessible because it's meant for it's per, meant per just for, the for the people dispute. not including everybody yeah.
0: yeah 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 so that's another area but, of distinction but you know what's thing. funny
1: though in chicago they would always push the extra snow into the accessible
0: spot. no oh, oh yeah it was bad chicago. it was bad yeah <laughs> uh, mobsters <laughs> up there anyways um so You know, I think there is a lot there, you know, so the language we use, the visibility, you know, is very important to destigmatizing disability. And, you know, I always think like, you know, when I think of access, you know, I I do think it's, first of all, our own individual knowledge and attitudes and beliefs about disability. And that's like every individual, right? Like, and, and how do we see it and our perspectives on it? And I know from my own experience, I definitely ran from disability. You know, it was just, I was embarrassed by it. I didn't want to be treated differently by it. And, and it took me a long time to finally embrace it and see it. And it, maybe it, it took a long time because I, it took time for me to see it as an asset in many ways. I've had to learn certain virtues and values that I really hold near and dear to my heart. Adaptability, resilience, perseverance, humility, gratitude. Mm-hmm having empathy for other people. I don't think I would have really be holding those as close and near and dear to my heart if I didn't have a disability. And I value that as now a strength, but that took time. So now I embrace it. So I guess everybody has their yeah. own time to really embrace disability.
1: And that for an outsiders, it, it's really beneficial for me, if as an outsider to listen to the community and see like, and hear what they say. And so like within the autistic community, many from like the autistic self-advocacy network they have said like they have a whole thought piece about person first versus identity first language. And they said like many parents might want to use person first whilst the, pers- or the autistic individuals will say identity first language. And so I said like, well, I'm just going to go with what they say and say autistic because that's what they say. As a public health professional, I'll waffle back and forth. And if I need to, I'll say, I'm going to say this, but that's to include both terminologies mm-hmm. with the acceptance that many people will choose either
0: right i i think it's a really interesting and so many great perspectives to have on i guess like i want to say either or side but how about and both right it sounds like you're taking an and both approach you yeah. know versus like it's got to be either or or black or white and and i just you know find that there's this topic on whether whatever to call i think points to the kind of the organic growth and evolution of how we use language to communicate like it's an always a moving target it's never it seems to me to be set in concrete and so I think it's just, it just shows that what I appreciate about you is like you're eager to learn like okay so what is the right way and, and hearing from other people and really taking to their perspectives into account And and to me that shows like Lack of ego, like you are you don't think you know it all. So you're willing to learn and willing to adjust and accommodate based on where people are coming from. And I think that could be another way of destigmatizing. like, Are we eager to learn and based on what we learn, willing to change the way that we think and the way we speak and the way we act?
1: I think that and it's also helping others realize that they have inherent bias and that's not a bad thing. It's just that you have bias, and how can we We all have bias? We we all have bias because yeah. we're human. That's right. It's and what can we do to counteract our inherent bias? So, like the the job that I got inherently that got me into the whole disability studies movement was I only got it because the professor thought I was a female because she did a telephone interview and she did not know I was a male wanting to do a breast cancer study so she hired me entirely virtually entirely by phone because she did a telephone interview and when i went to the first meeting she saw a six foot tall brown male in this in there and she was like oh i did not expect you but welcome so (laughs) wow so that level of lack of bias on her part well the idea that she was able to counteract her bias by doing something as simple as doing a telephone interview made me realize like there are steps that I can take to counteract any bias that I know I have. And it's something as simple as like, even if like in today's age, like with zoom, we can put our name and our preferred pronouns to account for everyone's intersectionality Uh of their gender. So like, those are simple things that we can do.
0: Well, Going to your comments about bias, we all have them, and for me, I found that that was an, a great thing about being thrown into the research world and, and conducting a scientific experiment, where we got to assert a hypothesis. You know, so we we have a bias by you know kind of asserting our hypothesis, and the idea is then to go on and do the experiment objectively without bias. And so for me, I always found like there were some researchers that wanted to divorce themselves from having a bias. Uh, by not acknowledging that they have a bias, like, I don't have a bias, I'm just being completely, versus some were just like, no, we all have our biases, let's lay them on the table, let's see it, let's claim it, let's name it, and then let's disassociate from it, you know, to the best extent of our ability, acknowledging that we do have it. I found that exercise to be so powerful. Yeah.
1: I think I think you could almost figure out those are the qualitative researchers versus quantitative researchers. <laughs> and awesome. i'm a i'm a mixed methods person <laughs> right? so I like, and to, both. I
0: like to straddle both yeah. yeah you're an and both guy not either or <laughs> i love it yeah so i think we we i think I, I think we've pretty much cracked the code on how we can destigmatize between you know being more <laughs> visible being more accurate in the portrayal how we communicate the language you use being eager to learn and accommodate for both and or and both kind of ways of communicating and acknowledging our biases i think we're on to something so uh <laughs> we're ready i think to write our book and do our ted talk Let's and do, do more workshops <laughs> so I, I think a good place to hear to you know enter into like our, our our last phase of the interview would be talking about autism speaks i think from your from, i would love to get you an understanding first of all you know what is autism speaks and its mission and how do you fit into it
1: so autism speaks is the so I'm part of this public health and data science collaborative our department within Autism Speaks. Autism Speaks has a lot of different missions, like five main missions for them. Their missions are around increasing global understanding and acceptance of people with autism, being a catalyst for life enhancing research breakthroughs, increasing childhood screening and timely interventions, improving the transition to adulthood, and ensuring access to reliable information and services throughout the lifespan. And so my role within autism speaks within those five mission areas is to really straddle the, at the, I live at the nexus of true public health work service and supports like information and advocacy and also advocacy work. Mm -hmm. So like, how can I provide information and referral from an an IL perspective, as well as advocacy level supports, as well as from a true data perspective, what is autism numbers? Can I provide stats and lit reviews Mm -hmm. and give it to those people? And so I live at that nexus, right at the center of those three
0: worlds. That's an awesome nexus to be. Like you're such an and both guy. Your role as then a data scientist, perhaps then, uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, is to take... The data and inform the different types of communication services uh, and advocacy that fulfills the mission of Autism space.
1: Yeah so like a clear example that I could share with you is that um, at the start of the pandemic when we all saw the long lines of people waiting for food at the grocery stores mm-hmm. and the empty shelves we conducted a needs assessment to try and figure out within the autistic community Um, and households. What were some of the basic needs for people? Was it housing? Was it physical activity, mental health? Was it food security? And obviously, it was all of those. But we chose food security just because of it was not many people were addressing that topic area. Uh, So we decided to look at some of the publicly available data sets. So we used the National Survey of Children's Health to just see what was going on pre-pandemic. And what we found was that the autistic households were significantly more likely to be food insecure than those non-autistic households, even when controlling for all other demographic factors, household factors, neighborhood factors, um, just they were more likely to be food insecure. And what was a little scary is like, it's not just not having food. It's the fear of not having food that would make you more likely to be insecure. And some of those like risk factors, like the, effects of being food insecure include like mental health issues, physical health issues, and not just for the parent, but for the child as well. And this could be like where the parent is going hungry, because they're giving their food up for their child, or the parent is worried about where their food's going to come from in the next month or so. So what we decided to do after we got that paper published, was we met with people at the CDC, some members of, of some staffers at Congress just to share our results from the study and what we were going, what, like, what could be done with this, as well as we decided to run a more in-depth needs assessment after the fact during like about a year into the pandemic. And what we were then able to do and subsequently get pu- published was showing how the, within the pandemic, how the autistic community was still more likely to be food insecure compared to a random sample of the general community at the exact same time of the pandemic um, while controlling for all the same factors like age, race, income, all those other variables. And so we were trying to figure out like what might, what might be some of the reasons for this and beyond just like access to money, access to the food and all those other variables within the for autistic household it's also might specifically be access to the specific types of food access to a particular brand because many children might need like they want the specific like blue box of food Mm -hmm. or they want this brand or they might have a specific um, gi or nutritional issue that requires them to get a specific type of food that was not available during the pandemic or had reduced capacity and now now that we're at this like massive inflation period of the pandemic food security is going to be at a different reason because people's buying power has been significantly reduced now so what could we do to try and address food security going forward
0: did you all then come up with any kind of programs or supports or was it mainly like kind of like a policy you know kind of advocacy
1: we have some plans I ha- well i have some plans for how to try to address food security i was going to talk to you after the fact after we're done recording yeah definitely because we
0: de- <laughs> we did a food distribution program because we were in the emergency operations center it was initially activated in march 2020 and they were activated for a while and we got hooked up with Feeding Florida, and they got us mm-hmm. hooked up with our local food banks. Even to this day, we're still delivering food to people uh, in the community, in their homes, who have uh, access barriers like transportation or you know just whatever physical, cognitive issues that might be precluding them from getting the adequate access to food. So yes, definitely, let's offline. Yeah. get connected. Yeah, I'll talk to you offline. Yeah.
1: But I think like the big thing that we learned was that people were going to, we're not going to food banks they were going to churches and they were going to schools mm. to get their food for, to get their free food when they were food
0: insecure yeah and they are stocked by food banks those mm-hmm. the usually food the churches are getting their food from food banks and... and they're getting their
1: food like they're getting from the food banks and also yeah. the um the federal food agency yeah. like they they're the ones who also supply the foods with the food like the free the free yeah, the food USCA. program yeah yeah
0: you know, therein lies, like, if we want to dive deeper, you know, offline here, is, like, you know, a lot of these foods that are meant for long shelf life have tons of preservatives or refined, mm-hmm. processed, like, not the best foods to be giving people no. that tend to have, like, more likely to have cardiovascular disease, diabetes, stroke, etc. So, so, it's kind of like, you know, we're caught in a, in a tough situation where we we need food and the places that we have access to getting, you know, food, masses amounts of food to people are unfortunately and you see this all the time in food drives are processed foods which high salt high sugar high fat you know that are in there so it's kind of like okay we're giving them calories but-, but also
1: you know what another complicating factor here in tony is like we live in florida and like two complicating factors you want to make sure like the food's culturally appropriate yeah, for families sure. and that's one complicating factor yeah. The other really complicating factor is like the climate change issue, because if there's like a hurricane coming in and people are evacuating out of their area and they are also food insecure, where are they going to go to leave and have food? And if they have a child who has a disability or they themselves have a disability that requires specific food sensitivity issues, how do you make sure like the shelter or wherever they're evacuating to is stockpiled with food that is available and accessible and inclusionary for them
0: absolutely this issue is complicated yeah well job security for us you know, like you know <laughs> honestly and, and i think like we bring up some really good things that uh that we can push forward absolutely mm-hmm. i look forward to having that yeah. discussion and you've been at autism speaks for a few years now right
1: just over three years okay. just finished my third anniversary
0: what what would you want people who um you know aren't familiar with the autistic community to know about the autistic community
1: Within, well, they're part of, they're a member of the disability community. And what we've started to do is we've, within the autistic community, they're not just children. They grow up to be autistic adults. Mm-hmm. Autistic children grow up to be autistic adults. And for me in particular is that you have to be mindful of the intersectionality of race, gender, sexual orientation, that many people within the autistic community are part of the LGBTQ community as well Mm -hmm. and they're they're part of that community and in particular for me if they're part of a, a racial ethnic minority and are also autistic they go from an autistic for example a black autistic child will grow up to be a black autistic adult and if they have for example a behavioral issue or behavioral outburst in the community and there is a law enforcement interaction with them. How can we train law enforcement community to be aware that this is an autistic person as well as being a black person and not resort to any extreme
0: issues? I'm glad you brought that one up because it was geez, I want to say around 2016, 2017, and there was a you know a high profile, you know, police shooting of someone who had autism. And right away, the state mandated, you know, sensitivity trainings for all law enforcement uh, across the state. And they came to us asking NCARD, Center for Autism Related Disorders. And they had us at the table. We were meeting with uh, Gainesville Police Department, Alachua County. And they were, they were like, what do we do? Like, how do we do this training? Like what's going on? And for us, uh, and, and again, uh, I'm not an expert in this area. So like my, my take was kind of immersion, getting to know people who have autism, and spending time mm-hmm. with them versus like, we're going to take this three-hour training on what autism is. <laughs> you know, and, like, and you're good. Yeah, you know, it was what was striking to me. Again, kind of like I, I came from a where I worked in community-based resource centers and low-income minority neighborhoods. Where there would be police that would come out to the neighborhood, get to meet the people, get to understand culture a little more, and do like take the time to get to, to know people, and have face to face interaction versus we're going to send you to diversity training, you know, and and like <laughs> to expect you to like understand and this and the other. And so one of the things I think they ended up doing was you know inviting you know people who had autism to their roll calls, spending more time getting to know people because the point well taken. One of them said like I don't know that. You know, the difference when I roll up onto the scene and need to make a split decision on is this person autistic or are they, you know, having a reaction to drugs they might have taken? Are they violent in how they're expressing themselves? They seem mm-hmm. violent. You know, I couldn't fault them for not knowing the difference between those kind of things. So it was very interesting.
1: Yeah, there's that aspect. But there's also one more area that I'm personally passionate about because I'm also, the chair elect for the American, the disability section of the American public health association. And we're going to be hosting a webinar on how accessible voting is a public health issue. And for autistic individuals and people with disabilities, especially trying to make sure that as they grow older, that they have access and availability to their rights as an adult, mm-hmm. as a citizen in the country, to vote mm-hmm. and have their capacity to vote. And the American Medical Association has shown that voting right, voting access, is associated with social determinants of health, Years. and they've wow. tied it to health outcomes. Voting access wow. to health outcomes too. It's like states with more open voting have better health outcomes. So, to so like how can we as as we know disabled people have worse health. So how can we improve their access to vote voting to hopefully to, well a it's their civil right to uh-huh. vote. And how can we enable that from a local and state perspective?
0: Well I know we did some work with disability rights Florida a couple of elections ago going to voting polling stations and doing assessments on the environmental facilitators and barriers, the machines themselves and the staffing and their, you know, knowledge and abilities and and stuff like that. I don't know if you've connected with disability rights, but I think that's one of the areas that they're really uh, keen on as well.
1: I have. And yeah, I have, I'll be in touch with you about this
0: too. Okay. All right. Well, I I look forward to learning more about how voting rights uh, are connected to health outcomes. Certainly makes sense when you said, you know, they're, they're definitely uh, connected with uh, social determinants of health. One, one other thing on autism is you were bringing up that kids with autism become adults with autism. One, one thing I, I've seen just kind of uh, you know, on the periphery is that working with parents who have sons and daughters with autism who aren't at a place yet to live independently post-secondary, you know, after they get out of high school, they're going from pretty much their whole lives having a very structured kind of a place to go and routine to now they're they're in adulthood and what now? Like there's not necessarily mm-hmm. a one like a school setting, a place to go in the community that engages them in meaningful and enriching activities during the day. And they seem mm-hmm. to like you know be like, okay, now what? For what, what do we do now that we're young adults, that are gonna become middle aged adults. Um, that's one. And then part two was, you know, they're concerned that maybe my son and daughter may never be able to live independently. Like we're trying to work with them so that they can. And at the same time, they're like, well, what happens when we're gone is a big mm-hmm. question that they have, you know, on their mind about that. So I don't know if you can, you know, hit those two areas in, in terms of what happens when people leave, you know, education uh, and, and enter into young adulthood. And then perhaps beyond that, for those that, you know, may not be at a place where they can live independently yet What happens when the parents and or caregivers, you know, aren't around anymore?
1: I know I can't answer what happens because I'm not familiar with that topic too much. But I am aware of, at least in the state of Florida, from a data perspective, there's well nationally too, there's a discrepancy in the data between what happens from a state, from a school perspective to post school. So like from schools have access to their physical therapy records to their vocational rehab data to what happens post-secondary post, education, like, post-school, post like when they go to voc rehab outside of school, like how can you link the, what was taught in that area so that there's no lost information in translation. But a bigger concern, though, is the connection for services in the state of Florida, Florida, I think, has one of the longest wait lists for DD services in the state or in the whole country. Mm-hmm. So how can we shorten that wait list mm-hmm. or eliminate that wait list entirely so right. that way people can get access to healthcare, care, um, HCBS, which is home and community-based services, so that they can get access to housing yeah. or some other kind of services in that perspective. That's that level. But also, there are support groups around. I know at the University of Illinois Chicago, they have this sibling leadership network, which is where many siblings have grown up to become close. Obviously, they're close to their family members because they're siblings, but also they become the next in line to take care of their person with their sibling with a disability when their parents pass. And it usually tends to be from tamar heller who was one who said that it usually tends to be the older sister caring for the younger brother or the sister caring for the brother with autism mm-hmm. but that might not always be the case sure so like there are options and availability out there and support groups that are there
0: definitely another area where we have job security i think <laughs> yeah there there is <laughs> one question i ask uh all all people that come on uh to the show is what does the independent life mean to you or living independently
1: um I, the easy answer for me is just the independent life is to do what you want when you want uh, but that's all that's actually a cop-out answer but i feel like because you know. have to have some. You have to have some structure to it, right? Because if you do what you want when you want, then you're You can easily be unproductive.
0: True. You know, I guess it, it, the intention, you know, kind of is there as well. <laughs> but it also points to like the freedom to make choices, right? And and I know yeah. for our center, you know, we we want people to make the choice to go back to school, to school, or to get work, or to get adequately, accept, you know, housing and and all these other kind of things. And at the same time, when we uh, are working with people that are maybe not making those choices or other choices that we can see maybe not being in their best interest. We also got to let them make those choices. And that's part of independence. You know? It is. Yeah. But I
1: also wish that there were some structures put in place yeah, where yeah. I did not have that option available to me.
0: Hey, yeah. Amen. That's the public health <laughs> person. In- there, yeah, yeah. There,
1: there are times where I, I heard like, I love, to sit there are periods where like i just want to sit down and not do a thing i just want to like watch a show on netflix or on Mm -hmm. disney plus and just kind of yeah zone out for a bit
0: and it has its place (laughs) just can't be binging everything in moderation you know right everything in
1: moderation
0: yeah well hey I, i i want to acknowledge you for being just a you know real champion uh for the disability community
1: yeah i appreciate that yeah
0: no i mean like yeah, we, we didn't even really, uh, and this is another episode for sure, get into all your efforts with the COVID vaccination. We, we kind of glossed onto it. Uh, at the beginning and I wanted to do de- a deeper dive and we'll, we'll, we'll have to do another one here uh, that really gets into that because we're we're overlapping in efforts there but I, I really appreciate how you bring a, a really uh, great public health perspective into the you know how we can really see disability the social environmental context and what disability happens being really alerting us to how we also need to see within the disability community you know the intersectionality of disability and how we can really just i guess be open learners always wanting to to learn and and say and do better we're kinder spirits in in the sense that you know research and data can really help to inform programs and policies that are out there to make a, a bigger and broader impact on you know how we serve people i i really appreciate how you got a good variety of experiences you know working here with the center for independent living in north central florida in accessibility um, healthcare uh, you know your experience with cinder uh, your graduate studies being there at autism speaks you're getting such a, like a wide and deep immersion into the world and community of disability and to have someone you know man, i didn't know that america public health association that you were leading the disability you know arm of of that as well that's huge so you're starting just, in november that's amazing so so thank you for everything that you're doing it's just uh, uh, it gives me a lot of inspiration to be seeing someone like you uh working in, uh, as much uh, as wide and deep as you are
1: no, man, I appreciate it. And I'm happy to help out in any other future episodes.
0: Well, count on it. We're, we're going to be connecting offline to do the good work of helping people. And until the next time, we're going to take this onward and upward.
1: Oh cool, man. Talk to you later. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at
0: 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.